Acts 5, verses 12 through 16. And as we do every Sunday, we read together and let us read aloud. Beginning at verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for uh, the blessed opportunity that we have to read, to study, and to grow in your word. We ask that you would bless and anoint us with your Holy Spirit, that we would gain and, and grow in that wonderful knowledge of your word, that it would be not only written upon our hearts but upon our minds, and that uh, as well upon our tongues that we, Lord, would speak your wonderful words of life. We ask that you would guide us, Lord, in our lives and that your word would be that light for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. With a mention of signs and wonders and miracles in this passage today, it would be easy to overlook what is quite possibly the greatest display of Christ's power through the Holy Spirit, greater than any particular sign, greater than any wonder. And that is that God's people were still together in one accord. That is a tremendous work of God's Spirit. That God's people are together in one accord. Through the many generations that have passed and the centuries since the beginnings of the church to our present day, we in the body of Christ today have, have discovered in, in, in a not-so-flattering way that our hearts and our minds can be more difficult to move than any mountain. We are sometimes a very stubborn lot of people, aren't we? And so, what a tremendous work it is when God brings us together as one. Consider that from denomination to denomination, from one theological distinction to another, the Church of Jesus Christ has subdivided itself into so many camps that it is hard to identify any unifying traits between them. And certainly we can consider all of the camps themselves, conservative, liberal, fundamentalist, charismatic, Bible-centered, liturgy-centered, salvation, gospel, social gospel, those camps could go on and on and on. And because of so much subdivision, the fear of God and the power of God in many cases have been lost, or at least they have been misplaced or even left alone. It should remind us of the statement the Lord Jesus gave to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, when Jesus says to them directly, I know your works, 
your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And I want you to notice that Jesus says to them that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. What a tremendous warning Jesus gives to this church. A church that was a a working church, a a church that labored hard for the gospel of Jesus Christ. A church that labored hard for the truth. But it gives us an indication that we could labor on and on and on, and yet we miss, we lose sight, or, or we leave that first love. And he admonishes them to do the first works, to repent and to do the first works. Now, we could discuss and debate what the first works were in the church of Ephesus. But it is clear to us from all that we've seen so far in the book of Acts what the first works were for the newborn church. And really what our first works should always be. We could always say that our first works are to love and to serve our God. And certainly that is what the the early church was, was for them, their first works, their love for God, their love for one another. And we can never separate those two things. Our love for God and our love for one another. This is what the people saw in the church. This is what the people saw in their love for each other. Their love for God, their love for each other, their love for each other, their love for God. Never was able to be separated, you see. And two characteristics that cannot be overlooked are their healthy fear of God and their trust in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Healthy fear of God. And trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what I'm saying can be lost, or at least it could be lost, but it could also be left. And I said it was an interesting thing that it says that you have left your first love. Because if you lose something, of course you could find it because you're probably looking for it. We all lose our keys at one time or another. We want to find them. So it is a stronger statement to say that you have left because that gives intent. There's an intent there that you leave your first love. And what is left when we have cared more for other things than for God is that healthy fear and that healthy trust in the Spirit of God. I mentioned last time that the church was unified. It was magnified and it was multiplied. These three features are evident in the first three verses of our text today. Look at verse 12. It says, Through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. And notice this, And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. All with one accord. They were unified. They were together. They were as one. Secondly, in verse 13 it says, Yet none of them rest." None of the rest, I should say, dared join them. That is, the rest who gathered around what was going on in the church. None of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. That means they were magnified in their eyes. 
They magnified them. Why? Because they were genuine. They were honestly serving God. And then thirdly, in verse 14, it says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so the church was not only unified, it was not only magnified in the eyes of the people around them, but they multiplied and continued to multiply. But we must ask the questions, what helped to keep them together? What helped to keep them together in one accord? What was it that made those curious and concerned onlookers to highly esteem the believers in Jesus? What caused them to magnify the church? What was it? What reason could there have been for the continued growth of the church? I want to give you one hint, as it were. It comes from what we saw last time in verse 11, and we're going to kind of begin there actually today. Verse 11 of of chapter 5 that says, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Do you notice the two groups that were that were affected by what had taken place with Ananias and Sapphira? It says, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So it wasn't just believers, but it was non-believers. Great fear came upon them. So we see in this verse that both believers and non-believers had a healthy fear of what the Lord was doing in the church, especially after the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, something genuine and powerful was happening among the church. Lives were being changed. The very presence of God brought about a reverential and a respectful awe and fear of God. As I said last week, it gave them a, a high view of God and a high view of His Word. And that is what we need to have again in the church of Jesus Christ today. A high view of God and a high view of His Word. Not a high view of man, a high view of God. It amazes me sometimes to think that some people are saying that they they are looking and seeking for the face of God, but the only thing that they're looking at is the mirror. We need to look to the God who created the heavens and the earth. We need to look... To the Lord who came to us and took upon himself flesh and went to die on the cross and rose again from the dead. We need to look to him who said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. We need to have a high view of God's word. For he has magnified his word above his name, Psalm 138. A high view of God. I also mentioned last time that it is in this verse that Luke used the word church for the first time. In the Greek, the ekklesia, which means the called out ones, called out of the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ and called into service for Christ and his kingdom. We are here today, the ekklesia. We are the called out ones. It's interesting that the... the, the, uh, the Hellenistic Jews uh, would, would use actually that word in the Greek, ekklesia, for the congregations of, of, uh, of Jews uh, in the synagogue. But it is a word that we use today. The word we get, uh, uh, from that word we get the word iglesia, as it were, and so we know that that's the church. The gathering, the congregation, as it were, of God's people. But it means the called out ones. Called out of the world called into service. 
It was certainly now the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira that reinforced the concept of the separated nature of the ecclesia, the separated nature of the church, the separated nature of the believers. We are to be separate from the world. We are to be separate from the things of the world. And so that judgment of Ananias and Sapphira just reinforced that. You see, let's consider as well that the news of what happened, the news of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira spread like wildfire through both the Christian community and through the whole city of Jerusalem. And here was a dimension that had been unrecognized. Here was a dimension that had been unrecognized. The community of believers in Jesus Christ was not only a joyous place, it was not only a place to learn of the forgiveness of sins and peace with God, it was not only a place where people could gather and to genuinely rejoice and to praise the Lord and to share all things in common, as we've seen so far, it was also a place of holiness. It was also a place of holiness and a place of purity. And God brought that judgment to reinforce that purity that He did not want them to lose so soon in the young life of the church. And whereas the Holy Spirit had acted in judgment, He was now going to act in blessing. It would seem sad to think that the Lord in His sovereignty would want to frighten people away from the gatherings of His people. God did what He had to do as we saw last time. But what proved otherwise was that there was now this fresh outbreak of miracles. This fresh outbreak of signs and wonders to authenticate the gospel of Jesus Christ. To authenticate the work of Jesus on the cross. To authenticate the work of Jesus rising from the dead. And in verses 12 and 13 of Acts 5 it says, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest there joined them, but the people esteemed them highly. What we can begin to see here about the church in in, in three particular points, and we're going to look at the first one now. What the church was doing was growing in purity. The church was growing in purity. The fear of verse 11 was a holy fear that if you'll notice, it didn't split the church. You know, I think we would have a lot less church splits today, a lot less confusion and and contradiction within churches today if we truly feared God. If we truly feared this God who created all things, created the heavens and the earth, we would have less arguments. We would be one accord. We would be sharing all things in common. You'll notice it didn't split the church and neither did it hinder the work of God. There are those who believe that the church of Jesus Christ today must lower God's standards for the church to make progress in the world. You'll hear people say, listen, we live in a postmodern society and so we have to kind of come to an understanding of what it means to be a postmodern society and so we need to kind of start looking at things the way the world sees. Are you kidding me? To start seeing things the way the world sees things? This is what is wrong with what is called the emergent church today. All of a sudden we're trying to look for ways to... We're not we're looking for ways to, 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 to strengthen the, uh, you know, the, the knowledge of, of God in the world today. If we do that, if we lower our standards, if we take the Word of God out of churches today and just say, listen, we're going to have a, we're going to have a, a gathering of people come together. We're going to try to entertain you. We're going to try to make you feel comfortable. We, you know, we're not going to try to step on any toes. We, we don't want to do any of that. But, but listen, at some point in time, we might just read a verse of Scripture. 
We might eventually at some point in time tell you about the lovely things about Jesus. We might not tell you about the cross yet because you know the cross. Oh my goodness. Blood and all that. You see how utterly ridiculous that is? Lowering the standards to try to reach people today? May I say to you again that there are those who believe that the church of Jesus Christ must lower God's standards for the church to make progress in the world today, but this has never been further from the truth. The body of Christ, the church, is always and will ever be strengthened when it takes hold of the vision of God's holiness. We must take hold of the vision of a holy God and of His holy word. Let me ask you a question. Did Isaiah the prophet run from God when he saw that vision of the Lord? Turn to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Did Isaiah run away from this vision? Think about the question. I'm telling you right now, people run away when they hear God's word. People run away when they think of the holiness of God. It's not what I want to hear. Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> Listen, did Isaiah run? In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up in the train of his robe, which speaks of his majesty. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Can you imagine that vision? If you saw it today, what would you say? What would you do? He said what he could only say. He said what any of us could only say. Woe is me, for I am undone. When we finally see the high view of God, when we finally see that vision of of a high God, all we can say is we finally see ourselves for what we are. Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am undone, I am disintegrated, I am blown up into into every tiny bit and molecule in seeing this God who is so holy and so awesome. So did Isaiah then hit for the hills because of what he saw? I'm out of here. Is this what happened? After an angel came and took a coal from the altar and went and and touched it to his lips, what do we find in verse 8? It says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. You see, we don't run because of the fear of God. We acknowledge that God is holy, that we're not. God is righteous. And we're sinners. But when He touches us with His holiness, when He touches us with His pure fire and cleanses us because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and He says, Who will go for me? What do we say? Here am I. Send me. You'll notice in our text that there were a few who did not join the church. But they stayed on the fringes, esteeming highly those who who were the dedicated believers. There are always the idly curious, the mixed multitude who crave the fringe benefits of Christianity without making any real commitment to Christ and His truth. 
There will always be those today. There was the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. They were not all pure Jews, but uh, they came out mixed, as it says, mixed multitude. We are told that they weren't uh, really a, a, a good example or a good help to the children of Israel. Numbers 11 verse 4 says, Now the mixed multitude were among them yielded, uh, now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. You know, so they were still kind of craving the things that they had in the world. You know, and this seemed to have weakened, you know, Israel and so on and so forth. As you can go back and look at that yourself. But it's interesting that uh, when the church was gathered together, others dare not join them. And and you would have to think, well, now was this just out of uh, tremendous fear? Let, let, me, let me say that it is, but, but I want you to look at it from a different perspective. Uh, there is another thought to consider about the ones who dared not join the believers. And this is, I think, a very important point. No one believers dared to mix in with a crowd of believers pretending to be one of them because of what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't want to mix in as pretenders. That's fear, folks. That's the proper fear of God. There are a lot of pretenders today. They have no fear of God. But in that day, when they saw Ananias and Sapphira carried out and they heard the news or they, you know, they heard the, the account, they stood, they esteemed the church. They said, oh, how blessed they are, how dedicated they are, how devoted they are to God. We highly esteem them. And they highly esteemed them because they were genuine. They were real people. They were real about their love. They were real about their faith in God. But there wasn't any room for pretending. So now you understand why they didn't just jump in there and want to be pretenders. Just an interesting thought. Now some people would think that the church's growth would be slowed down then. Well, nobody's just jumping right in there. (laughs) But when the people saw how the Lord dealt with sin among the believers... They realized that the ecclesia was a whole was as a whole pleasing to God. The church was pleasing to God and held high standards of honesty and righteousness. And this is why they magnified them because of their genuineness. And you see, we as believers in Jesus Christ today, we need to be genuine about our faith in Jesus. We need to be genuine. In other words, not just what we do here but what we do when we go out into the world as representatives of the gospel of Jesus Christ as representatives of the kingdom of God as representatives of the cross I read a very very heavy duty verse of scripture it's Philippians 3.18 I won't quote the whole thing for you but it, but it mentions there the enemies of the cross and, and, and the reference is not just to people who are complete unbelievers and, and don't care. It's, it's about people that, that say they are, but are not. Say they are devoted to the Lord, but are not. Enemies of the cross. That's a sad thing if we have to think that even in the church today, there are enemies of the cross of Jesus. And so, consider then the importance of understanding what the ecclesia, what the church is, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. 
But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You see the importance of the church. The church of the living God. It, wasn't the, it didn't belong to the apostles. It didn't belong to the people. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Him, the church of the living God. It is His church. And we ought to know how to conduct ourselves in His church and how we ought to conduct ourselves as members of the body of Christ, the pillar and the ground of the truth. The apostles themselves continued to be full of power and full of the Spirit of God. And so they kept on doing many miraculous signs and supernatural wonders. And what we need to understand is that the miracles which the apostles performed were never done for the purpose of display. They were never done for the purpose of gaining or grabbing hold of the attention of all the people so that they would be magnified or they would be glorified in in the process. No, they were never to be doing that. They did what they did for the glory of Christ, for the glory of God. You remember when Peter and John were going into the temple and they ran into the lame man who was at the gate called Beautiful? And what they said to him were these words. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And when they finally took him, who was now walking and leaping and praising God, which he had never done in his life, he had never entered into the temple, now he goes in to praise God in there, and people are amazed, this is the man who's been lame from birth. And, and so they begin to ask questions, and Peter uses the opportunity to preach what? Jesus Christ. That he was the one that did this. He was the one that they were to look to for the power of healing. They did not draw attention to themselves. They did not draw the, the, you know, the, the, the applause or the accolades from the people. They all pointed to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and His care for His people and their needs. And that is something that we need to be reminded of each and every day. Paul says in Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed... Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever it is that you have been called to do, whatever it is that is your talent, your gift, whatever it is that is your calling, your career, that where, where God has placed you to be, whatever it is that you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so this, is, this was the church growing in purity. It was growing in purity and then it was gaining in progress. That's the second thing. They were gaining in progress. Verse 14, notice if you will. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. And I want you to notice that it doesn't say to the church. It says to the Lord. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Now, it's interesting that non-believers wouldn't join the church. But believers were added to the church. You see the big difference here? Non-believers wouldn't join the church, but believers were added to the church. I guess you could have people join churches if you want, and certainly there are churches that have, you know, that kind of membership thing, or you can join this church, whatever, and you... Of course, you have to know Jesus Christ and have made a commitment to the Lord and and whatnot, but... uh, But when you do that, what happens is you really are just added to the body of Christ when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
Now, many of us, you know, before we came to, to the Lord, we, didn't, we wouldn't step into a church. We didn't want to. We didn't want to join a church. We didn't care about that. <laughs> but when somebody shared the love of Christ with us, when they shared the word of God about what Jesus Christ came to do for us, and, and it touched us, and it, and it changed us, and we, and we received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we repented of our sins, we turned our lives over to the Lord, we became a new creature in Christ, the old was passed away, behold, all things have become new, and all of this started taking place. You know, we, we didn't join a church, we were just added to the body of Christ. So we have to understand, you see the difference here. So the, the non-believers weren't joining the church, but believers were still being added to the church. When did they become believers? You see, because you have to go from being a non-believer to a believer. That's, nobody's born a believer. You know? I, I have a problem when people say, oh, I, you know, when you ask them, how long have you been a Christian? Well, I've, I've been a Christian since I was born. You know, uh, That's not true. You were a sinner when you were born. You were born in sin. And we know that. The Bible te- teaches us that. One of the first things out of your mouth when you began to talk as a kid was, Mine, mine, mine. Me, me, me. The whole focus was me. It wasn't God or Christ. So you weren't born in, as a Christian. You know, no Christians are born in the flesh that way. We receive Christ, you know. And so, you know, that's the understanding here. And by the way, even more importantly, they were added not just to the church, but in fact to Jesus Christ. In other words, they were increasingly added to the Lord. This was, uh, this was a true success story. Souls were being saved and lives were being changed forever because the Holy Spirit was unhampered and unhindered in His work. And again, consider how remarkable it was that after two people are struck dead for their sins, multitudes more were being added. That's a great testimony. Believers were willing to lay down their lives before God. It has been said that they would rather be struck dead for lying than to go on living a lie. That's a tremendous statement. They would rather be struck dead for lying than to go on living a lie. They died to themselves and they died to Christ. And more and more people were added to the church. You see, this again is true reverential fear. It is the true fear of God. And the progress that came upon the church is continuing today. Why? Because God has never changed. God never changes. The Bible tells us that God is immutable, which means that He is a never changing God. He is the same, just as it says in Hebrews 13.8 about Jesus. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So why is it then that we have to act as if we have to change things to make things easier for other people to come to the Lord? We just need to trust in the God that never changes to give us what we need to let them know that He never changes, that Jesus never changes, that the blood of Christ that was shed upon the cross never changes in its effect upon our lives. It never changes the very fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That never changes. You see, progress is made in the church because God never changes. His work on this earth is vast. It is immeasurable. It is carried on in all parts of the world by a multitude of believers. It is going on today, right now. I was thankful to hear the testimony of the Gideons this morning and last night. Over 70 million Bibles have been been placed all around the world in 181 countries. Think of that. And then to hear the testimonies of of what these testaments and what these Bibles are doing. What a testament it is. It is carried on, you see. 
And it continues on today. God's still working. There's no slowdown in what God does. Because He never changes. He's the same. And so is His Word. His Word never changes. People today, you know, the Bible says, uh, are like grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the Word of God, the Word of our God, stands forever. The Word of our God stands forever. One more thing. Women are mentioned in verse 14 as among the multitudes added to the Lord. Now certainly they they had been added previously to the church, but only now does Luke mention them. It is in the book of Acts that national distinctions are broken down along with ethnic distinctions. And so we realize as well that gender distinctions uh, are broken down. Men and women make up the church of Jesus Christ. That's a blessing. It is a blessing. Now it's been suggested that by this time the number of believers had risen to over 10,000 in the church. 10,000. You almost have to consider that it was even more. When you think about uh, the way that Jesus touched and affected the lives of people when he went forth, and uh, for example, the multitudes that, that came to follow him, because we're told that multitudes joined. And we give an idea now what a multitude is when you think of Jesus taking all these people and laying them out in, a, in this hillside, you know, and having them all sit down in certain ways. And, and, and uh, they counted the men, you know, after Jesus had, had passed out, you know, the little boy's lunch, you know, the bread and the, the fish, the little sack lunch. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the sack lunch just kept getting bigger and bigger. And he fed everybody. And then they had, uh, they had leftovers, too. Twelve baskets full of leftovers. Wonderful thing. But when they counted the people, they counted the men because that was easier just to do. They counted 5,000 men. But their families were there, their wives, their, their children. And so upwards of some 10,000 people were in this particular multitude that followed Jesus. So when the word multitude is used here, we don't have a number to it. But we would have to say that it could be way more than 10,000 now have come to know Christ as their Lord. They were added to the Lord, it says. They became members of Christ's body. An organism, you see, not an organization. We have to remember that. We are part of an organism. We are part of something that has life because of the someone who has that life in us, Jesus Christ. We're not part of an organization as much as we are part of an organism, a living, living body. That that we need to keep in consideration each and every day of our lives as we serve the Lord. And so the church grew in purity and it gained in progress. And lastly, it... It was gracing in power. That's a real word, by the way. It was gracing. It was gifting. It was giving. It was granting in power the things of God. Think about what it says. So they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. So it wasn't just those who were sick physically, but those who were being tormented, oppressed, maybe even possessed of the enemy, uh, tormented by unclean spirits. And they, it says they were all healed. They were all healed. What a tremendous statement. That is a key word. That is a key passage here, or a key phrase. They were all healed. So going back to verse 15, you'd think that after reading this particular verse, you know that some large furniture chain dropped off some lazy boys and sort of sleeper mattresses onto the streets 
of Jerusalem so that the sick could comfortably wait for Peter to pass by with his five o'clock shadow uh, for that special blessing. Is anybody here this morning? Uh, y'all awake? Did you kind of catch that? The furniture store leaving the, you know, the beds and the couches, right? That's what we picture, beds and couches, but in fact they were just litters and mats so that they could have them laid down as Peter was walking by. <laughs> Interesting. No, it, uh, not the five o'clock shadow. It was probably three o'clock shadow. Remember, that's when Peter and John were going into the temple, so it was three o'clock. Forget that. All right, so I just want to make sure you're still awake at 10.15 this morning. In fact, this, this, this was just another result of the fear of God in the church. It was another result of the fear of God in the church. The believers had such confidence in the Lord that they brought out the sick, they brought out the lame, the crippled, and the frail out into the streets. And they laid them on litters and mats so that when Peter walked by, even his shadow would overshadow them and be healed. We'll get to that in a moment. But the Lord here was proving to Israel that the church was the body of Christ and His apostles were His accredited messengers. The church was the body of Christ and the apostles were His messengers, His hands, His extensions. And still we know that to this day the Jews demand a sign. Is this not what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22? For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, God is not foolish... And God is not weak. But Paul uses an interesting device to get us to see things. That if there could be any foolishness in God at all, it is still a lot wiser than men's wisdom. And if God could be weak at all, which He is not, but if He could be weak at all, His weakness is still stronger than ours. Our strength. Jews request a sign. And signs were given. People were being healed. It says they all, they all were healed. The news was spreading far and wide. Huge crowds were gathering from all around the city and the surrounding towns and the communities. Peter's shadow was as much an instrument of, of the Spirit's power as was the hem of Jesus' garment. Think about that for a moment. I know that our text doesn't specifically say that, Peter were, uh, that people were healed by Peter's shadow, but we can ascertain that it became a point of contact where people would, would release their faith in Jesus as the healer. It, it is important to note that it wasn't necessarily superstitious to think this, you know, about the shadow. It is said that in their culture, shadows were understood to be as extensions of a person. But getting back to the hem of Jesus' garment, here again, We know that there wasn't anything magical in the garment. There wasn't anything magical in the hem itself. But it was a way of her faith, this woman that was healed by Jesus that day. It was a way for her faith to be released. 
In Luke 8, verse 43, it says, Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. Remember, Luke was a physician. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We'll get to that in a moment. But he, 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 he documents here, who, she had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. It came from behind and touched the border of his garment. Jews of that day, as well as even today in, in, in some of the Orthodox uh, Jewish circles, they wear this braid of, 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 uh, of cloth uh, wound and, and, and weaved that touches the four corners of their body. They're called, it's called the tzitzit. And, and, and that's the border of the garment. It was done in a very uh, pure blue color. And it is believed that that's what she touched. And immediately it says her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? <laughs> Remember, this crowd is all about Jesus. And he says, who touched me? When, when all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitude's throng impress you. And you say, who touched me? Isn't it interesting that Peter was the one who speaks up? whose shadow now people are wanting to have passed by them. But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. And of course, when finally the, the woman uh, confesses in all, in Luke 8:48, Jesus said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith. It just was a, a point of contact to release that faith. She trusted in Jesus. It wasn't trusting in the hem of his garment. It wasn't trusting in that little braid. She was trusting in the Lord. If that's all she could touch, she knew that he had the power to heal her. In the same way, there was no power in Peter's shadow itself. But there was power when a person believed in Jesus to heal them. And, and just the passing of his shadow helped some to believe. And again, remember also that Luke, being that physician, wouldn't be recording miraculous healings without investigating them. And I'm sure he did. But in whatever way God chose, oh, chose to bring healing, there is no doubt that a remarkable work of healing took place. There, there was a tremendous connection between the purity that we spoke of. There was a connection between the purity and the progress and the power that was displayed in the church. The Lord blessed a pure and a progressing church with power. The Lord blessed a pure and a progressing church with power. It is quite significant that the multitudes came from great distances to the apostles instead of the apostles going to them. This is another story, by the way, but I'm going to mention it anyway. It's a fascinating thing. They came to the apostles. It's not, what, it's not quite what Jesus had commanded them to do. He says, you shall receive power, Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, which they were being. But it says, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we could argue and say, well, they were in Jerusalem, the people came to them. But eventually, because of persecution, they would go out to Judea, Samaria, and then eventually to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth in obedience to Christ. And so, of course, we'll be learning that persecution would eventually force them to leave Jerusalem. But as for today, as for right now, does Christ's power continue? Does the power of the Lord Jesus Christ continue today? He still answers prayer, doesn't he? 
still answers prayer. He still heals today. What wonderful testimonies we oftentimes receive of God's healing power today. You know, we've often been told that, you know, once the apostles died out, so did that apostolic uh, uh, gift, as it were, you know, as far as the many healings. But I can tell you that in some third world countries today, signs and wonders will continue and continue to authenticate the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We uh, support a ministry called uh, Gospel for Asia, K.P. Ohanan. And uh, I know K.P. personally, and, and, and I know that K.P. would not just want to tell stories just to, you know, to, you know, to kind of stimulate the emotions of people. When you read the, the newsletter from Gospel for Asia called Send, uh, and you can get on gfa.org if you want to see these uh, tremendous testimonies, but the testimonies of people being healed of leprosy, of AIDS, of things that, that we would consider, you know, untouchable type things. They're being healed and because of that healing they're turning their lives to Jesus Christ. Their whole families are coming to know Jesus Christ because of what those signs and wonders are doing. It's still happening today. Christ's power continues today. And let me just say as I close here now that let's, let's put aside the claims of, of psychosomatic healings, the outcry, or I should say the outright chicanery of lion charlatans, you know, the, the showmanship, the money to be made, and the, the deliberate demonic deception, because that's really what it is. When people are saying, oh, look at all these healings that are going to take place, and they've been having happening, happening here, and they're throwing, you know, uh, wheelchairs this way and crutches that way, and, 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 but, but no, nothing to authenticate what's going on. And if all of this power is there, why aren't they going into the wards and the hospitals today? Understand. Put all this aside and trust the Lord. Trust that the Lord is still able and willing to show Himself strong even through His very own servants today. And besides, when we see somebody healed, we say, thank you, Jesus, you're the healer. It wasn't me, it wasn't the person who may have laid hands on a person on somebody I know some pastors you know they lay hands on people and they pray for them and and the person dies they think oh my but you see God is still in control and if a person dies in Christ they're in glory they'd be the first to tell you don't bring me back I like it here I'm with Christ what a, what, what a deception there is today. We need to be aware of that. Where's the humility? Where's the love? Where's the giving? Out. Not taking in. You see, it just comes back to this. It comes back to what the Apostle said. What Peter and John said to that man at the gate called Beautiful. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Continue to pray that God would continue His work in His power and His might until the day of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray?